0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder.
1: I'm Anna Ryan.
2: I'm Dan Schwester.
0: And I'm Mike DeFlippo. And today for the first episode of twenty twenty, welcome back. We Happy New Year. Happy New Year. The world is on fire.
2: Everything's falling apart. Uh-huh. <laughs> So,
0: for today's episode, we're going to talk about using clinical gestalt in your decision-making and whether or not there's actually data that supports it. So, the fundamental question we have is that, is it possible or likely that clinical gestalt is sufficient for determining patient conditions, um, and how does that tie into their outcomes, how does it tie into their treatments, both pre-hospitaly and in the emergency room? So, let's talk about what gestalt is. Dan, tell us about what gestalt actually is.
2: Well, it's kind of like using a phrase... Fr- it's it's foggy. It's it's not a the term is really. I don't know the exact etymology of the term. But when we talk about it, you, people like you hear people talking about you using gestalt. It's kind of like you are taking in all the factors and you are just kind of using your brain to kind of come to a conclusion. Um, you know, it's like you see a patient. Uh, Here is their signs and symptoms. Here is their history, and you make your educated guess based on. Everything that's surrounding that patient—it's holistic. Um, I don't know the the definition. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like pornography. I don't. I can't <laughs> define. I can't define it, but I know what it is when, I, I, know see when it. I see it.
0: So the actual the definition is an organized whole that is perceived as more than the sum of its parts. So what it comes down to is, in the absence when you're in so when you're in the field and you see, you know, this is a 65-year-old female who's having mid-sternal chest pain, it goes her shoulder, blah, blah, that whole presentation. From uh, your e- experience, you can kind of say, like, okay, this is probably, you know,
3: cardiac-related.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's exactly yeah. how I would explain it, too. I, I,
3: I always thought of it as, like, your gut feeling. Like, that's how I, I always went with it. Like, not yeah. necessarily, like, what I'm thinking or, like, an amalgamation of, like, data in my head. It would right. be, like, you look at a patient, to me... Let me put it this way. In EMT school and medic school, to me, gestalt is sick or not sick. Like when you look at a patient and you're, you're laying eyes on them and you hear a little bit about them, what does your gut do? Like to you, is that patient sick or not sick? And to me, that's gestalt. It's also in the name of my uncle in Germany.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's up, punk? <laughs> no, this is, it's non-algorithmic thinking. It's not A plus B equals C. It's A plus B plus X plus Y plus whatever it is that I'm seeing in front of me plus whatever experience I've had in the field beforehand equals the likelihood of the condition that I'm treating. Does that make... You forgot to carry better? the two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't math. Do you math?
0: <laughs> no, but that's that's pretty much accurate. And it's, you know, it's this kind of intangible thing that we have. And we hear about it a lot. Um, oh, you know, people it,
2: love throwing the word around.
0: Uh, right. And But, it, I mean, I, I think it, it applies. Um, so it comes down to, you know, is it something that we acquire or develop? And if that's the case, how do we acquire it and how do we develop it? So you go through all your training, whether you're going through EMT or medic school or critical care school or, you know, whatever you're going through, and you get your basic knowledge. But, you know, we've all been in a situation where, you you know, you read a textbook, you read a presentation, and it's like, okay, well, this patient has, you know, let's say left upper quadrant pain. It's probably a problem with their spleen, which is generally not the case. You know, there's a million things that abdominal pain can present with. Same thing as, like, you know, chest pain isn't always cardiac. So, you know, I think a lot of times when we're talking to EMT students... We tend to make them think that chest pain is immediately cardiac related. And that's without, you know, seeing any data anecdotally, I think that's generally not the case. Most chest pain tends to be pleuritic or, you know, it's gas (laughs) or, you know, it's lupus. Yeah, it's never lupus except for that one (laughs) One time it was was, lupus. Um, You know, so I I think having that kind of critical thinking going through is what we need to, to try and get across. So how would one actually, you know, acquire adequate gestalt to actually get through a patient assessment
1: patient contacts yeah Yeah, i was going to say i just hands down
3: through straight up experience seeing seeing enough things i I think if you had to ask me my personal experience with gestalt i can give you an example of an experience in the sense that so there's something called a neurogenic yawn so patients i feel like a lot of time when you get an ultra mental status unconscious unresponsive in the field there's always that question are they bsing is it serious or like what what the etiology is and something i learned from a patient i thought was bs from a physician was oh always be on the eye for like something called a neurogenic yawn and it was this thing that i always retrospectively thinking back on patients and thinking like oh yeah they were really sick they were a neuro patient and they didn't like they didn't fit the typical mold like you know maybe they were like a 25 year old with a brain bleed that someone thought was just drunk or something like that but there yep. was something off about them that your gut was like mm, this patient's sick but i can't tell why and for me, it was like the neurogenic yawn was the defining factor for like that untold gestalt. Right. So like there's a thing, just to explain the neurogenic yawn, um, it's a phenomenon among patients with like a neural problem that they just yawn. So like you'll be in the middle of the, your assessment and like, you know, uncharacteristically they'll yawn in the middle of the assessment or they'll be yawning even though they're unconscious. So for me, like that was an example of like something that was my gut gestalt that I later found out was associated with an actual phenomenon. There's also right. not
1: a single person at this table right now who's not trying to yawn. Right. <laughs> to yawn. I'm like, don't do it. You don't have a bleed.
0: Well, but also it's the, the thing with the neurogenic yawn is that it's it's inappropriate in the context of what they're doing. Like, it's it's it has like a regular pattern. It doesn't just occur well, like I think one that's, time.
3: I say, uh, but that's also picking out the sick versus not sick, right? right? So sick patients don't fit... Well, sick patients do fit a typical pattern, but they don't fit the typical healthy person pattern. And it's that gut feeling that I think makes gestalt. Like, again, going back to sick versus not sick, like... <laughs> Seeing a patient that doesn't fit the not sick models and then they're sick and then in your gut, you're like, okay, something's off about this. And you may not be able to point to it and say this is what's off, but you know something is off about them.
0: Well, and that's, you know, we talk about a lot and and it certainly happens in the field where, you know, we'll run into BLS providers who, like, I'd rather hear I don't know what's wrong with them, but I know something is wrong with them. Mm. than hear like, I don't know, it's your problem now. Mm Mm-hmm. You
2: know. Well, well, Gestalt too is like it ties into how we think. Right. Um, it's there's a book out there uh, titled Thinking Fast or Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Dan Kahneman. Yeah, and you know we talk about System One and System Two thinking, right. yep. and you know for these? for the geeks, Star Trek people, like System One thinking is Captain Kirk. Mm-hmm. He's instinctive. He jumps before he looks. He's it's dynamic. It's it's on the f- almost like kind of on the fly thinking. System two is much more like Spock. He's uh, very it's methodical, analytic, very analytic. Right. Uh, plays the algorithms and does things. And you know, Gestalt is a lot more like it's kind. It's kind of like combining system one and system two thinking. It's almost like it's a like system, system three. three. <laughs> um, but that's a really good book if you want to like get into this. But Gestalt encompasses this. It's how it's it's a system of thinking. It's almost its own kind of thing.
0: Just as a thing with um, with thinking fast and slow, like it is a, a, a absolutely like a book that we're going to recommend. But you know, fair warning, it's almost eight hundred and forty pages long, and it is light a it's it it's a light light Sunday reading. Um, it is it is a very hard book to read. Um, I mean, it's it's good. It gets a message across, but you know, add it to the uh, the 2020 reading list but it's it's a lot to get through so all right so we do actually have data that supports using gestalt um, not necessarily over clinical trials or you know clinical findings but you know, you want to ask, like, okay, well, if people just see a patient and they're like, oh, I've seen this before, this is an MI, but it's an admiral presentation, you know, how, how close can we get, how relevant is it, and how, uh, how can we apply it? So, in 2019, this is in July, out of academic emergency medicine, Oliver et al. did a study. Uh, Mike, what do we think about that?
3: I think it was a good study. Um, I don't think it made any groundbreaking um, findings. I think it just supported stuff that people knew. Um, And essentially, in short, uh, your gestalt is good to determine whether or not someone is sick. Uh, The specific study itself is the question and the title of the study was, can emergency physician gestalt rule in or rule out acute coronary syndrome? And not to get, uh, not to spoil the surprise for anybody, but the answer is yes. Um, So this was a huge multi-center study that was done up in the UK And it just assessed patients who were adults with suspected cardiac chest pain. Uh, And the outcome was if they developed ACS symptoms over 30 days, which included acute MI, death, but also included if they uh, were revascularized. So it was about 1,600 patients, and essentially they just asked the doc as soon as they walked out of the room, is this or is this not ACS? And they had to say definitely not all the way up to definitely. So when it said definitely, 63% of the time they were accurate that this patient was uh, some sort of ACS. More importantly, when they said definitely not, 5% of the time, those patients, uh, 95% of the time, they were accurate. 95% of the time, it was not ACS related.
0: And that turned into 100 when you actually had a a supporting EKG and troponin level. Correct,
3: yeah, so, which is really good numbers. Um, So if you go actually read the study yourself or like on a a website like First 10 EM where they go over a review of the study, you'll see things like sensitivity, specificity. So just to like go over those things again, uh, the definitely not was very accurate. It had a sensitivity of ninety eight point eight percent. So, what sensitivity measures in statistics is whether or not you can rule something out. So, sensitivity rules out. So, with a ninety eight point eight percent sensitivity, that's extremely good for statistics, especially clinical statistics. So, it's it's a great study.
0: Yeah, and it's it, the it you know the the n is good enough. Um, the data is good enough, and also this is a secondary analysis that came through. Um, This study actually went through one. This is more of like a second look to see how Gestalt actually works. So this is a very, very good study Um, and still pretty new. Again, just July 2019. We're also going to link in the show notes. Cara Borelli over at Rebel EM has a really good rundown of this study as well. Um, So what I think was interesting about this, and again, we have 100% definitely not with an EKG and a troponin. So when you have medics in the field that are running serial EKGs like just in case, you know, I, I think a lot of times you're like, oh, maybe I'm trying to find something that's not there. Whereas, well, you know, you can have a patient really like, like, abdominal pain often is, right. is not an MI. And that's where the gestalt thing comes in. You're like, well, maybe, you know, one time six years ago I had someone who had abdominal pain and it was, you know, a clandestine MI. So
3: I think this study does a good job of telling you—so this study isn't saying, like, never, you know, do things because of protocol or whatever— Essentially, it's just saying, like, if your gut or your clinical gestalt, whatever you want to call it, whatever clinical gestalt means to you, if you're telling yourself with enough experience that this is definitely not ACS, you can comfortably not pursue ACS as an algorithm. Right. If there is even the remotest possibility that you think it's ACS, though, do the ACS workup.
0: Right. Well, and that's where it comes down to trusting your clinicians. Right. So if if you have someone who's like, you know what, I've been doing this for 15 years, I kind of think this is a coronary thing okay, then, then go with that. You well, know, and that, I feel like that's kind of what this supports. Um, I think
3: this is more, the only reason I said that is because you give the example of like, we all know that medic that was like oh, 25 years ago, I had one MI that presented <laughs> as a toe pain. So now I do a 12 lead on every everybody. Toe pain. Yeah. So <laughs> I think this study though, is very good in the sense that for a reasonable clinician with a reasonable gestalt and background, I think it's important to actually, this justifies your, your feeling like, you know, Literally not all toe pains are MIs. Right. So just because you had one experience, which does happen, that's why medicine is also an art and a science. There Mm -hmm. are are anomalies and everything. But with good reason, you can now say, look, I can trust my gut and say, like, if I really believe this is not ACS, I don't have to do the ACS workup."
0: Right. Also, for those keeping track of the overrun drinking game at home, every time we say Gestalt, it's a social drink. Uh, (laughs) People are shitfaced right now. It's five o'clock in the morning. So (laughs) So So your
2: instincts do matter.
0: Of course. Well, and, and that's kind of what this this study supports, where, you know, if you have been in the field or if you've been in the clinic long enough and you can just think through a presentation, then oftentimes what you're thinking about tends to be right. It's not you know, it's not 100 percent. Nothing ever is. But, right. you know, again, the abnormal presentation that you had one time 25 years ago is probably not going to happen again. Exception, not the norm. You know, and yeah. how often do we hear stories in the field where it's like, well, and, and like, like Mike was saying earlier, you know, well, one time I had this really admirable presentation, and right. now I take that as the norm and not the outlier. Right. You know, and that's I think that's kind of the important. But
2: conversely, thing. like you get and and you know, respiratory ailments are a big one. With the, like CHF for me is like a perfect right. like gestalt moment. You don't you don't have to think through everything. It's like you see that person; they've got the they've got the coronary disease history. Uh, they've got the rapid onset. They're tachypnic, They're hypertensive. That's that's it. Well, that like, was an I example I
3: was thinking about. Like those the, are the patients. Like that... I don't need
2: any. Do I need anything more?
0: Right,
3: right.
2: In my experience, probably no, because I I know what I'm. Then what I u- almost use it use it as is an opportunity to like okay now I'm going to prove it. Well, so and so this... now I'm going to listen yeah. to lung sounds. Now yeah. I'm going to do all the other stuff, and that's I'm I'm guiding my assessment, my workup to this is what it is, let me prove it to you. Well, we well, you anticipate
3: a clinical outcome. Like, those yeah. those CHF patients are a perfect example. Like, some of them you can walk in, and you can go, like, this person's going to buy a tube. You're saying
0: like, you can walk in, not the patient can walk in. Right. So, yeah, because how <laughs> often we see the CHF patient walking in.
3: But I, I think that's, like, a good good example of gestalt also. I mean, the, the sick respiratory or chronic respiratory patients with right. acute illness, you can say, like, look, we're going to trial CPAP or BiPAP, but in my heart of hearts, like, I know... It's going to be futile, and this patient's going to buy mm. two. Sometimes you're wrong. Right. But oftentimes but, uh, enough, yeah. I'll say you're right, too.
0: Right. Well, and that's that's why we're bringing this up, because in the field, you know, we don't have the luxury of having lab values drawn. We don't have the luxury of, well, m- in most places, we don't have the luxury of bedside troponin. Um, you know, we just have kind of our clinical judgment and an EKG. So it's it is important that we have that type of mindset where we can look at things and say, like, all right, in my experience you know, X plus Y tends to equal Z, maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, this is typical what we're looking at. Like, you know, your CHF patient, if I've got someone who's got a history... Maybe you're of,
2: wrong more often than not, you're right.
0: Right, exactly. And, I, and I'd rather be, you know, the, the example would be like, you know, trialing a, a you know, beta 2 agonist on someone who's got CHF. Because, like, ah, what I heard kind of sounded like a wheeze. I'm not really sure. You know, and then you bronchodilate them, and that's when you actually start hearing Rawls, and that's when, you know, you move down the CHF route.
2: Right. Um, and that and that's actually a good example of that, you know, that undifferentiated patient. This is where Gestalt comes in. This is where you see like your entry level clinicians mm-hmm. don't have that. So they think right. it's more algorithmic. Well, it's wheezing, so I give this and now, oh, whoa, what's this now? You know. And you know, it was an old trope that, you know, we made people worse. We didn't actually make them worse, but we can get in that's a whole another well, yeah, podcast well, that's, episode. Yeah. Um but yeah, that's it's that's how you develop it. You know, those experiences get filed away. And again, you tend to find the middle of the bell curve.
1: I think we should talk about the aspect of Gestalt that, drink, uh, that, (laughs) (laughs) the idea that an entry-level clinician doesn't have a Gestalt reaction. Is that that the right way to put that? Probably, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. It is today. Um, But this is where our education, or our standard of education has started to fall short. Is we teach, you know, entry level EMTs or entry level paramedics that, you know, you heard wheezing, therefore it you use bronchodilator, and therefore if something goes wrong now you flip the script and you do something else, but we have started to kind of enter in this into this world of high fidelity sim, right? So why is it that we aren't using Gestalt or starting to develop a, a Gestalt reaction? What is that three? <laughs> uh, Two. <laughs> So why aren't we starting to incorporate that into a curriculum? There is no reason, I mean, you know, physicians see thousands of patients, you know, during their training and then like during their residency and whatever else, but like we should start to bend the the scenarios from an algorithmic uh, exposure to something where they would have to actually think through it. There's a process to all of this and we should start to kind of foster that gut reaction Am well, I, I wrong
0: I know I think that's I, I think that's probably right um, that you need to start exposing these type of you know decision-making trees early on in the education process I do tend to think that the reason we don't teach that way is because it's difficult and I think a lot of educators kind of shy away from that because the other thing is you can you can go into a description about a patient's presentation and then you can tell an entry-level student like all right well I had this patient one time who did this and this and this and this and I knew because I'd been in the field for 15 years that it was this presentation. Sure. And I think that it's difficult to try and get that messaging across to entry-level students.
1: I think that you're wrong.
0: Okay. And I love you, but I'm sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that, so for... Well, I, I, should,
0: I what I should say is I when I say I think it's difficult, I think that it's the standard educator... Would, would rather would rather teach in a way that is consistent with what they've seen and how they know to teach mm-hmm. as opposed to changing the way that they teach and getting a different message across.
1: I think that that falls on the educator. I think that oh, if I you're, agree with if, you you're, if you're going to if you're going to demand a higher standard and a higher um, reaction, I guess uh, of your students, then you have to adjust in order to accommodate that. Right. And I think that with a little bit of grease paint and some liquid latex, you can make yourself an asthma patient. And have them see what it looks like, mm-hmm. so you can increase fidelity. You can say what wheezing sounds like, but then you can get someone who's you know. I'm not saying go out on the street and find like a sick homeless person and have them <laughs> wheeze into a microphone.
0: <laughs> it's have students running around the town be like, "Come back here! I so I need so, to assess you."
2: <laughs> so what what you're getting at Anna is we can create an environment to foster the development of gestalt. We can. Drink. Drink. Gestalt, gestalt, gestalt. <laughs> the overrun is not responsible for your emergency department bill. Um, but we can foster this. We can fertilize it. We can right. actually start their brains from that initial thing of developing it. And th- isn't that kind of what they do in graduate medical ed, in your residencies, in your your internships? Isn't that what they're fostering?
3: I would I would say so. Um, I think as far as physician education it goes. Uh, needless to say I think it's just as Anna said you see f- too many patients <laughs> you you see literally thousands of patients like over, over the course of your years yeah why am I sweating I am I? yeah I have the meat sweats right now. <laughs> I'm very uncomfortable everyone's looking at me um, I, I, I think physician education is done very well in the sense that you know you have to do a residency to become a licensed physician in the United States and that allows you to obviously build your gestalt because you just by virtue of how many patients you're seeing not only do you get to see all the bread and butter patients that you're able to recognize routine disease and acute emergencies, obviously, but you also see the anomalies. The cases that go into case reports that become a footnote in a textbook that like, you know, this is the routine, uh, you know, example of how a disease presents. But here's the footnote and some anomalies of how this disease can also present. Right. And I think that's difficult to put into a textbook because obviously that's something you see. And obviously that's something you're trying to teach. This is an exception, not the norm. But that being said, in addition to what Anna's is trying to say too, high-fidelity simulations become very ingrained into residency education and graduate medical education. And I think as EMS providers and EMS clinicians and teachers, we should be on the forefront of incorporating that into the curriculum. I just think it would be hard. My personal opinion is I think you can use high-fidelity sim to teach students sick versus not sick. And, like, when you really need to move and when you need to hustle. But my personal opinion, just based off Gestalt, I think – gestalt itself is hard to do in a simulation environment i think that's more of a thing to see actual patients and develop that
1: right so then take your your entry level for like the first i don't know random number take it for the first half of your initial class or whatever else and here's your high fidelity simulation this is all the stuff that you may see you know throwing in as many outliers as you want and then it's as simple as sticking in the field yeah take no, no I, agree. I think
3: i think earlier. I think earlier patient interaction is better. So again, going to medical education, as far as physicians, a lot of schools are now changing that you're doing clinicals at even some as early as the first day of medical school. You're going in, seeing patients. I mean, you don't know what the hell you're doing, but you're seeing patients, you're listening to reports, you're listening to the docs discuss the plans. And I think, I mean, I know there are some programs that also do day one ride time and stuff. I think that's great. I, I just think the more patients you see, the earlier, even though you may not understand, you can remember like. I just remember the medics I was with, like, going to work when this patient presented like this. And I had no idea what was going on. But, like, that's somewhere in your memory and will help form some connection somewhere.
0: Well, and that's kind yeah, of the well. bigger point that I think, and you know, I don't mean to speak for Anna, but I think that's what she's trying to make, where it is the earlier you introduce people to, you know, clinical assessment clinical treatment, the the more that we can kind of build up this, like, critical thought process. Right, but, so, like,
1: actual clinical yeah, process, yeah. not, like, algorithmic. Like, right. take, t- take your T sheets, throw them out the door. Right. And don't worry about points and don't worry about anything else. Just here's your patient, treat them. Yeah. And this is how we're going to think through our clinical diagnoses and how we're going to differentiate between conditions and like that kind of thing from day one.
0: No, and I tend to think that's right. I think the the more time you spend, like, because the whole point of this is like, you know, we're asking how do we build, you know, Gishtalp drink. Um, <laughs> it's... <laughs> <laughs> time, <laughs> yeah. time plus experience. That's right, and that and that's pretty much all it is. And you it know, really is. So it's the time the sooner your experience, yeah. And and I this, think if, the sooner you're exposed to things, the the faster get you your can students a in a high rating. volume
3: system. Let them right. see like tons of patients. I mean, there, obviously there's pros and cons to which system you, system you work in, but I just think the more patients you see, even at a fast rate, you may not need to understand everything that's going on. By just seeing a broad diversity of patients and a broad diversity of complaints yep. lets and if you build that. Cushion. And if
2: you're a student, one of the things that you can do to build this quicker is, you know, you, you referenced where you were a student and you saw, you know, a pre-hospital team just jump on something and they were moving so quickly to their decision points that you were like, where, where are they coming from? Debrief. This is where if you're if you're a preceptor or a training officer and you have students You need to debrief every call. You need to sit after the call, even if it's five minutes while you're packing up the stuff to go to the next one. Hey, what did you see? What did I see? This is what I saw. This is what my thought process was. Where was the difference? How do we find it? This was my mental model. This is where I was coming from. And those, I found that those actually help a lot because you really get that feel and you have to do it if you're not doing it. it students, if your if your preceptors aren't doing it, make them do it. Talk to them after every call. You know, you have these are these are experiences that will build your gestalt. And, you know, you have to get that feeling. Like, what were you thinking when you saw that? What right. were you what was your mindset when this presentation came up or you found this? That's that's the key to developing
3: this. Right. Like walk me through your thought process. I right. think like that's some of the most beneficial teaching I've received on the clinical end is like not necessarily like how they recognize the disease or how they recognize the patient's issue, but how they got to their thought process. Like, well, first I thought it was this, but then I decided it wasn't because of X, Y, Z. Then I said, maybe it's this. And then I said, okay, let's run this test and this test. And if this is positive, we'll do this. If this is negative, we'll do this. And just learning, obviously you're not going to remember everything, but just like being exposed to that over and over and over again. Right. And then also exposing yourself to a different diversity of thought processes. Meaning, don't ride with the same preceptor all the time if you can help it. Don't ride with the same people or in the same area or with the same uh, patient population because different patients present differently, different preceptors think differently, and different crews go about doing things in different ways. And there's multiple right ways to do things, and there's also multiple wrong ways. And I, that all goes into building this.
0: Well, and that's a general life experience thing too. Like Just getting outside of your comfort zone for a minute is going to you know, at least teach you a little bit. You know and we talked about like working with algorithms and how like whether or not they're actually effective so um, it turns out there's actually a study that supports that too um, so this is in November of 2019 at a clinical cardiology this is Wang at all so what they did was they um, they reviewed something called the heart score that is actually used for hospital admission um, and this essentially came down because hospitals needed an actual you know paper algorithm to admit people who had cardiac symptoms um, and the question that they seek to answer was: Was there actually a difference uh, using the heart score, which is a pretty kind of hardline algorithm, versus just the pa- the physician's actual clinical decision making? So, Dan, tell us about the heart score so, and what Wang et al. found.
2: Thanks, Ed. Well, um, hey, yeah. The heart score is interesting because it's almost like induced induced gestalt. Right. It's <laughs> it's this scoring system to decide where where the risk of someone's going to have an adverse cardiac event in the next 6 weeks mm-hmm. when they present with signs and symptoms of suggestive of ACS um and it goes into hi- history um it goes into the EKG and it there's some certain decision points where there's no ST deviation but there is a left bundle branch left ventricular hypertrophy uh any repolarization changes um if you get different points for significant DST segment deviation. They look at risk factors. Uh, You look at initial troponin and you get scored a number between zero to seven plus. Um, And then they've boiled this down to that basically is your risk of an adverse cardiac uh, event. If you have a zero to three uh, this uh, source MD calc is telling me it's 0.9 to 1.7 percent risk of adverse cardiac event. When you get above a seven, you have a 50 to 65 percent risk of an adverse cardiac event. Um, and in their study, these patients are the people that go to the cath lab. High heart scores go to the cath lab. Right. Um, low heart scores go home. And they wanted to look and see uh, in this study whether the heart score, being that it was algorithmic, that it was validated, that it's it. it breaks it down to literally percentage of risk. Was that better or more accurate than a clinician making a judgment based on their experience, their knowledge, their, the findings, basically gestalt. Um, The funny thing was, um, is that um, more people were discharged uh, using gestalt. Um, 42% were discharged when the clinician used gestalt. Uh, 20% were discharged using the heart score. That's that's kind of interesting.
0: Well, so in the issue with that in this particular study was, and so the reason that this matters is the heart score is now being used by a lot of cardiac care centers. Uh, for their accreditation and right. it's valid so it's, it's, it's a, good a good validated score. And, and, yeah. it,
2: and, and it works and it, it probably helps if you're on the, the fence with somebody you're not quite sure right you use this as another thing to say well I don't like this and this is telling me I don't like this and so he's going upstairs well
3: even for pro- I'll even say this from the other side of the table um, receiving patients from EMS with ACS symptoms In the presentation to your attending physician or if you're an attending physician, one of the first things you do before you even have any lab values back is you calculate a heart score. Even if it's high enough, without anything back, you're knowing I'm admitting this patient. Right. Right. So, I mean, could you say it's, I mean, you said it was like a built-in gestalt. And I would agree with that in in the sense that I think gestalt, we risk stratify based off gestalt, right? We say this patient's sick, not sick, what I'm going to do. Is there enough risk for me to do an intervention? Is there enough risk of this patient decompensating for me to Sure, that's, do it properly, those are daily calculations right? we do every day. And this sort of kind of like stretches that out. It shows you okay, this is how you this is how you can think through a gestalt thought or a gestalt gut feeling, right? So it risk stratifies based off the patient's family history, the EKG. Now the actual gestalt in the heart score is in the history. So the history breaks down into, like, not suspicious, mildly suspicious, super suspicious. Mm. Right. This ACS is hiding in a bush, and it's very much scary, <laughs> it's very suspicious.
2: Right. Some of the things that they talk about, um, hypertension, um, hyperlipidemia, uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, active smoker.
3: I feel attacked right now, Dan.
2: <laughs> positive family history, anybody who had coronary vascular disease before 65, um, and then, obviously, any prior cardiac events is probably giving you a really,
0: yeah. Those are almost well, inst- instant admits. So, but right. but so it's an observation. What this study was looking at, though, was the actual efficacy of using the heart score, and that's that's why we're talking about like you know actual decision making versus using right. the algorithm. And, and what they actually the reason that this these this forty two percent being discharged and twenty percent being discharged using the heart score is relevant is. What they found was twenty two percent more patients were being admitted right. almost arbitrarily. So when
2: you when you use the heart score, more people got sent upstairs. Right. So and that's, that's by the clinician using their gut feelings.
0: I, well, exactly. And that's kind of part of the issue with it, because while we talk a lot about, you know, field treatments and things like that, we have to be concerned with outcomes and with admissions. And it what this study actually showed was using just the heart score, we had people who were, you know, unnecessarily being admitted for generally you know a 24 hour buy just to you know because a paper, piece of paper said so you know now i think i would tend to think and this isn't actually elucidating well i'm going mean, to take the, it from
2: the other side does i is are we are we just accepting there's a patient safety factor here too and i think what the hart score is doing is it's giving you that that hard evidence that you can make that decision right. yeah they're they're going to stay
0: well, so but here's this is this is the hangout that I have with it. And this isn't actually mentioned anywhere in the study, and this is why it's important to read numerous studies and not just take one and and go with it. When you look at a patient's history, most of the United States is obese. Like that's that's just the reality of the situation. Uh, yeah. And so that gets you that gets you a point on the heart score. And then also when you look at EKGs, are they reading the EKGs or are they taking that it says abnormal EKG and what are the actual criteria for abnormal EKGs because you have someone who throws an ectopic beat that's an abnormal EKG so is that and I, I understand that I'm like I might be splitting hairs and this might be minutia, but I working you know having done this enough in my own you know ex- anecdotal experience those people tend to get more attention because it's easier in emergency medicine to kick it upstairs
3: mm, so a couple things uh one about the EKGs I would say that um my experience seeing physicians at several different hospitals from community to academic powerhouses has been that they don't necessarily make that point based off just one EKG. It's usually you compare it to a previous if you have it. And then even if there is something abnormal, quote unquote, let's say mildly abnormal, right? That's a good question. What defines an abnormal EKG for the heart score or what defines an abnormal EKG for your gestalt, right? Does one PAC make you suspicious of ACS in someone? Hmm. Nah, not really. Healthy people throw PACs, even PVCs all day long, right? So let's say you do have that EKG. It takes two seconds to run another one, right? The big thing with EKGs, 12 leads, especially the data showing now is like serial 12 leads, serial troponins, right? So that's why even if you, but that's the thing with the heart score, even if there's a little bit of suspicion, even enough to just kick your gut up and go, eh, a lot of places now are to continue into that. Not necessarily kicking them upstairs to, to quote unquote, take a bed in the hospital. A lot of EDs are now opening up like observation units in the ED, so ed ops right. units, yeah. or a coronary OBS unit in the ED. So there are a significant amount of patients, like you said, a lot of Americans are obese. That's just a factor of where we live. That automatically predisposes them to more ACS and makes them more of a risk factor right. for having an MI, which kind of sucks because now like every person that gets a 911 call or comes to ED with chest pain, yeah, you're fat yeah. and you have chest pain. You have a hard score. Right? It could yeah. just you're be because you're fat and you you, wor- right. you walked around for once or like something right (laughs) like it's not necessarily it doesn't make acs it's just like oh shit your 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 muscles aren't (laughs) used to moving in your chest like that right yeah yeah. Yeah. um but (laughs) those patients are important though because i mean this is all the stuff you don't normally think about because the downfall of gestalt is sometimes some things are so normalized in either your experience or your society that you don't recognize them as a risk right so let's take obesity for you like obesity has been very normalized in american culture that you don't necessarily think of obesity or being fat as a huge risk to your life because my grandpa's obese, I'm obese, my uncle's obese, like everybody you know is obese and they're alive and well. But there are risk factors associated with obesity that definitely go into playing into the heart score that these patients require more of a workup. So in short, I know I'm rambling. My point I wanted to make is I think there's a fine line and a definite use for both your gut and to have validated statistical tools to help you rule in or rule out things
0: sure and 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 <laughs> the I'm the breathing. end Take a well but then and to that note this study actually talked about how using serial troponins was superior to the heart score alone so even this you know the heart score is maybe not the best tool but if we add another component to it using serial troponin makes it really well. works out
3: and I, you can still I, i've still seen not to interrupt you sorry i've still <laughs> seen heart scores that were positive that you would say this person should be admitted based off the heart score but so the other thing people now track is the serial troponin or the delta troponin meaning you take two or three troponins and you track whether or not they're increasing or right. decreasing over a certain amount of time. And I've seen docs get a serial troponin that either decreases or is negative and they go, I feel comfortable admitting this person, even though their heart score may be elevated because the heart score can get falsely elevated by chronic conditions. Yes. It can get falsely elevated by just having an abnormal EKG that is that patient's normal. It can get falsely elevated because maybe the first doctor or first clinician that saw them said, Hey, this is a really suspicious story. And then on follow up you're like, eh, not so suspicious. So serial trippoint really is the key I think sure and so
0: I, like I said using it as an additional component and so right. the reason that we bring this up is because you know the most places who are looking for like chest pain accreditation have to use the heart score Correct. so when this came out in November in America. right so <laughs> when this came out in November it caused a lot of problems in some places that were looking for their chest pain accreditation because they've been working so hard to be using the score and so now they're hard. like so now oh God boo <laughs> So, so, but they, they've been working very hard to maintain the score, and it turns out that it might not actually be the best thing. That's, I, that's why I, I pulled the study for the show, because I thought it was actually an interesting, I'm pretty, no, pretty it, sure it's interesting, it,
2: it, it, It's interesting, and it, it's and used by Bill it could almost be its own episode. Yeah. So, th- what are the, t- so I'm thinking about this. I'm listening to you guys talk, and, you know, I'm like, so what are the takeaways here for pre-hospital people? We don't use, look, we don't use a lot of these, these scoring tools. A lot of this is gut instinct. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we joke, um, you know, the uh, Scott Weingard on MCrit talks about the LLS Dang. score. Yeah, I know the L. <laughs> you know, the, it looks like shit score, right. you know, and that's really what we use. I mean, you know, well, it's like a positive LLS score is basically what we do. The takeaways here are these tools are there. I mean, you can do this. I mean, we could probably do heart scores in the field, but do they matter for us? No. What really matters what do they look like? What are the potential problems? And the other thing is, if you think you're do, if you think doing one twelve lead in the in the field is actually doing anything for you, it's not. Right. Keep the precordial leads on, and you should be hitting that twelve lead button two or three well, times during your transport. See what's changed. Correct. See what's developing. Um, there are times where you know I, I've you know I've had both situations. I've had normal twelve leads during transport turning MIs. i've had st segment elevations that get treated that normalize. go back to that normalize it to the point where the do- the ed docs looking at me like you called this a don't you love alert. bringing that
0: in you're just like, like i swear to god i swear, swear to god, god they were
2: sick two right and two you, minutes you ago you feel like a moron but that's <laughs> but that's a real big takeaway from all of this for me and the other part of it is is this gut instinct matters if something's telling you something's wrong That's that's part of your gestalt. Something is wrong until proven otherwise.
0: So and there is actually some data to support this. Um, And again, we've talked about kind of all the stuff coming out of the states that, you know, we're pretty good at it. Um, So I did try to find a study that said that, you know, we're not great with gestalt because you want to try and find, you know, I'm not trying to both sides of the issue, but, you know, trying to find things. So um, I was able to find one in a 2017 at the World Journal of Cardiology. This is out of Brazil. This is dust versions et al., um, where essentially they only use Gestalt to associate coronary artery disease recognition. Um, hmm. And so essentially it was just, you know, you have a patient who's complaining of chest pain, say, and the clinician would just be like, yes, this probably fits what I would determine to be CAD. Um and it, they found that they were able to do that independently, but it was only about 61% of the time. So, you know, it's not really specific or sense enough to be used in the acute setting. But I think 61% is something that you can build on. And, again, this is in 2017, so things have changed since. Um, but we know that we have providers who can actually, you know, pick out things like, all right, so the patient's complaining, say, again, of chest pain, who is speaking in full sentences, lungs are clear, skin's dry. You know, is that a coronary thing? Yeah, it might be. But, you know, we're not really sure with that. And then um, in the Journal of the American Heart Association, again, in November of 19, uh, Rolfman et al. were talking about high-risk versus low-risk patients um, and their benefit from getting, you know, diagnostic exams or being sent home. And generally speaking, we find that low-risk patients who didn't receive diagnostics, who were sent home, were perfectly fine. And high-risk patients who received diagnostic exams, you know, had better outcomes than ones that didn't have them. So what I think it all comes down to is... You have to know how to assess your patients, which we've talked about ad nauseum on the show at this point. And you have to be kind of confident in your skills and your abilities. So if you're assessing a patient and you have that little bell that goes off that says, like, oh, I'm not really sure what's going on with this patient. but I think it might be something It's something you have to listen to. That's and it's a, something you should you have to listen to that.
2: Even for your brand new clinicians, something's telling you something's not right. Even if you can't put your finger on it or define it. Yeah. Listen to that little flag. It's telling you something.
0: Right. And that's that's kind of the point. You know, we know we try to, to quantify and you know, stratify everything with as much data as we possibly can. And we do have some things here that actually support it. But at, in the end, gestalt, ding, drink, is just <laughs> it's one of those things. It's an intangible that we really can't control for. But I do think that's something that we can kind of grow um, you know, and try and make better for, for patient care. So it's, it's an interesting topic. We do want to know what you guys think about this. Um, let us know how using your clinical gestalt drink has, uh, has affected your care in the field. We're interested to know. we're at productions at gmail.com. We are also on all the social media sites, the Instagram, the Facebook and uh, Snapchat uh, Productions, and we now have a Snapchat at on Productions. Um, so you can see us uh, snapping all of our things. Um, and again, let us know what you guys think. We're interested to hear it. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Shoster. I'm Anna Ryan. And I'm Mike DiFilippo. And we'll talk to you next time. (laughs) Gestalt. Ding. (laughs)